Philip Jensen is a retired Anglican minister in Sydney, and he had an incredible ministry at uh, St Matthias Church, which was then, uh, and he was then a chaplain to the University of New South Wales. He had a massive impact on lots of students. He had a massive impact on me, to be honest, as I read the uh, the, the the publications that came from their ministry. Uh, during his time, they saw 14 churches planted around Sydney through the, the work of that church. And after that, he became the archdeacon of the cathedral in Sydney. Well, his first sermon at the cathedral caused a storm in the media by suggesting that not all religions can be right. Other faiths, of course, should be given freedom and tolerated. But, and I quote, they cannot all be right. Some or all of them are wrong. And if wrong, they are the monstrous lies and deceits of Satan devised to destroy the life of the believers. Well, you can imagine the reaction. I mean, I listened to an interview he gave on the Australian broadcast radio when he was interviewed by Sally Lone. It went something like this. Sally said, are you saying other religions are wrong? You can't say that, can you? Jensen's reply was this. Is the world flat or round? Did Jesus die or did he not die? Christianity says that Christ did die. Muslims say that Christ did not die. In the Quran, Surah 1457, it's logically impossible, Sally, that all religions are right. She came back. Well, yes, maybe in some specifics they're different, but surely in general they're the same. Love, tolerance, goodwill to all men, all that stuff. Jensen replied, let me tell you, there is no bigger issue in Christianity than this. Christ died for our sins. We're either right or we're wrong. Well, he's logically correct, isn't he? And I agree with Philip Jensen. We, we don't understand Christianity if we do not understand the centrality of his death. You cannot be a Christian unless you know and trust that his death was for you. Now, where do we get this idea from? If you're not a Christian, it must sound very strange in your ears because many people have died in history. That doesn't seem to have significance for the whole world down through history. So why this death? And where do we get this idea from? Was it made up by the early church? And the answer is, well, no. It comes from Jesus Christ himself. And I want to ask you uh, right now to examine with me Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. It was read to us earlier, but please open your Bibles, open it up on your phone, and let's examine the evidence of what Mark has laid down here. And by the way, this is no simple, cold intellectual exercise. It's one that's going to challenge our hearts and our souls and our wills, because these verses focus our eyes on the death of Jesus. But the challenge, of course, is quite personal. What does his death mean to you and to me? What is Jesus worth to us? Well, notice the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. They were very keen to see Jesus dead. Look at verse 1. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. The official decision was that Jesus must be killed. He's challenged their authority 
too many times. Uh, he was making incredible claims that they did not accept. And they were eagerly looking for an opportunity to seize him in some covert operation and ensure his death. But how were they going to do it? I mean, the people were all so amazed and thrilled at his teaching. And there was uh, hundreds of thousands of people, pilgrims, crammed into Jerusalem around Passover. Uh, they tried to plot how they're going to get him. And you can imagine that they must have thought their dreams had come true when Judas turned up. And this opening part of Mark 14, you have the, the plots of the Sanhedrin, the betrayal of Judas, and in between the murderous plots and the ugly defection, you see a moment of absolute stunning beauty in verses 3 to 9. Can you imagine uh, the scene at Bethany? Simon, formerly the leper, perhaps healed by Jesus, has thrown a meal for him and his disciples. And there would have been a kind of a rug in the center of the room. And people, the dinner guests would have had been lying uh, on their sides with their heads facing the food, their legs stretched out into the room. And during the meal, an event takes place that we're still talking about today. A woman with an expensive bottle of perfume, probably a family heirloom, comes alongside Jesus, breaks the neck of the flask and pours it over his head. And as the liquid falls down the head, an amazing scent fills the room. And I would imagine everyone went silent as they watched this strange event. Nard was an expensive aromatic oil extracted from the root of an Indian plant. Outrageously expensive. And you can imagine the muttering. She's used up the whole bottle. Do you know how much stuff that is worth? She could have sold that for, for one year's wages. Well, what do you think of this act of this woman? Was it a good use of one year's salary? Well, they didn't think so. So they started scolding her. What have you done? Uh, think how many poor people you could have helped if you just sold that and, and got the money. You could have done so many good things. Well, what are they really saying as they're scolding her? Are they really caring for the poor or are they saying something different? As they condemn this woman and demean her gift, of course, they are actually demeaning Jesus. To their thinking, Jesus was not worth such an extravagant gift. Far worthier causes than Jesus could be found for this gift. Jesus does step in and say something greatly surprising to them. Look at verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. What a contrast. They think she's done something wasteful. Jesus says she's done something beautiful. Here's performance art at its most beautiful. Art really has a practical purpose but it most definitely makes a statement. And this woman is making a very powerful statement, isn't she? 
about what she thinks about Jesus. In one moment, she was expressing what Jesus was worth to her, what Jesus meant to her. He was, he was everything. Now, for decades, um, L'Oreal used to sell their products by uh, telling women that they should buy the product because you're worth it. Now, what this woman does in one dramatic moment is, is to make this amazing statement, Jesus, you are worth it. You are worth everything. It's an amazing moment of worship, isn't it? Worship through perfume. Who'd have thought it? Uh, verses 7 to 8 are also amazing. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Now, of course, Jesus uh, was not knocking, giving money to the poor. He'd reminded the religious leaders of the greatest commandment. Uh, we saw it uh, a week or so back, love your neighbor as yourself. But there was a command that was even more important than that, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And by this action, she was showing that Jesus was more important than even the great thing of caring for the poor. Now, this is a bit of an aside here, but isn't it sad if the only time that we truly express our love and best thoughts for people is at their funeral? And this woman kind of shows us the wonderful place of telling people while they're alive how much they mean to us. Uh, why don't you do that this afternoon? Pick up the phone, talk to someone, tell them. The disciples have 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 been told at least three times already that Jesus was going to die and after three days rise. And what response do they make? Well, not only was it not appropriate, but each time it was completely embarrassing. But look at this woman. She had far less access to Jesus, but she seemed to understand much more than they have. She did what she could. You know, that's all the Lord asks of us, to do what we can. She did what she could. Jesus says, she poured perfume on my body beforehand, prepare my, for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, I think if you read that too quickly, you miss how stunning this phrase, this statement is. Think about what Jesus is saying here. This woman is preparing my body for burial. And wherever the good news is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, will you see your death as good news? Most of us do not. Most people actually fear their death. But it's clear from Jesus's lips that he knew his death was special and he knew that he would be raised from the dead. Jesus says his death is good news. The gospel about his death and burial and resurrection will be preached about over the whole world. Jesus knows it. And perhaps that is why her deed is still remembered to us today, that she was the first one to put together the good news of the kingdom of God that would only be achieved through his suffering and death. Can I ask you this question? What is Jesus worth 
to you. This woman's uh, demonstration here is that Jesus is worth everything. He's worthy of everything. What we have here is extravagant worship. Do we worship Jesus with our whole lives in a way that shows that he is worth it? Is that obvious to others as they see the way we talk and see the way that we act and see the way we speak? Now, what I want to remind Christians today is that as we worship Jesus with our whole lives, he sees it and acknowledges it. He saw the widow putting in her two coins into the offering in the temple. And he sees the worship of this woman and says, it is a beautiful thing. What is Jesus worth to you? We've looked at beauty in verses 1 to 9. Let's turn in verses 10 to 21 to think about betrayal. Judas. Those are powerful words, aren't they, to throw at somebody today. If you said to somebody, Judas, it's not going to be a good conversation. It's funny, you don't hear many boys called Judas anymore. The very name just means the worst form of betrayal. And Mark spells out what a dreadful treachery it was. Verse 10, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. Think about that. He was one of the twelve. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness. Think about all that he had seen and heard from Jesus. Lepers healed, blind given sight, storms stilled, paralyzed men forgiven of their sins and unable to walk. Judas saw it all. What was Jesus worth to Judas? The staggering answer is too little. For despite all that he had seen, it is Judas who goes to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus. What evil delight must have been theirs when they heard the news. Oh, they were delighted to hear it and promised to give him money for his troubles. Well, what an acid contrast Mark gives between this woman and Judas. She clearly values Jesus more than money and possessions. Judas powerfully demonstrates that he values money more than Jesus. Just as much as she would be remembered for her extravagant worship, he would be remembered for greed and deceit and treachery. I think these verses are fascinating as we think about the issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Have a look at verse 21. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. We're obviously in the deep end of the pool here when we think about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But the Bible presents clearly these two things side by side in a way that sees no conflict. There's a sense in which Judas has been determined by God to betray Christ. In Psalm 41, verse 9, uh, King David spoke of this. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, the one I shared my bread with, has turned against me. What I want 
us to see that this does not excuse uh, the moral accountability of Judas here. Judas was fully responsible for his betrayal of Jesus. It was he who uh, went to the chief priests and not they to him. It is his treachery that brings them joy. It is Judas's icy resolve to complete his plan, as we see in verse 11, that he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas is not a victim of circumstances. He's not a powerless pawn dominated by greater forces. He chooses to do what he did. And yet, incredibly, at the same time, God was at work, even in the treachery of Judas, to accomplish his own amazing purposes and plan of salvation. Now let's turn to 12 to 19. Amongst the evil plots and plans, we see Jesus is in complete control over the events uh, that are recorded here. We, we, we read of the elaborate plans to prepare for Passover. Once again, uh, like the triumphal entry, two disciples are sent ahead with precise details that work out exactly as Jesus says. Why all the secrecy? Well, for one, Judas would have not known then uh, where they would be observing Passover, wouldn't be able to know when to betray him, would be at that place. And... Uh, so the events of that night would not be disrupted. This was a crucial meal. Jesus was going to teach something vitally important to his disciples, didn't want people to crash in on it. And all the way through, we see Jesus being in control of events. He's not overtaken by events. In fact, he seems to be engineering them. And, uh, and, and, and here we have him teaching what it's all about. The, the treachery of Judas is not a surprise to Jesus. Look at verse 18. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. The disturbing aspect of this story is that though all the disciples except Judas seem sad at the possibility of betrayal, by the end of this chapter, they're all going to end up deserting Jesus. None of them stand with Jesus in his greatest moment of trial. They all run away and Jesus dies totally alone. I think the shocking truth is that we are all by nature, all of us, I suppose, have Judas hearts. Uh, if our betrayal is not from greed, then it can come from weakness or fear or cowardice. We have a human nature that is in opposition to God and his king so that we too could have given the traitor's kiss. Even though we can be very close to Jesus, we can be churchgoers, we can attend Bible studies, we can even uh, sound like a Christian to others, we can, we can be perhaps big name conference speakers and yet deep in our hearts we can so little value Jesus Christ that come the moment of temptation, we will trade him for lesser things. What will be the legacy of our lives? Two people with very different memorials, one known for her extravagant worship and love for Christ, the other remembered for his despising of Christ in an act of betrayal. How will we be remembered? Tragically, in the last few days, the full report on Ravi Zacharias has come out. 
at his funeral all spoke of the amazing impact of his public ministry. Uh, even the, the vice president at the time, Mike Pence, described him as a modern-day C.S. Lewis. But now the great defender of the faith has been shown to be the greatest fraud. His exploitative sexual abuse, uh, his misappropriation of ministry funds to, 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 to promote this dodgy lifestyle. And now his name and his ministry will be forever overshadowed by his hypocrisy and sin. People have been profoundly damaged by his sin. Uh, the videos with the most views over the past year, I was checking the other day, do you know who it was? It was related to our dear brother, Derek Prime. What a lovely and lasting legacy of a godly minister of the gospel. How we still miss him. What a contrast. What will be the legacy of our lives? What is Jesus worth to us? Well, because of the feebleness of our hearts that are so prone to forget all the blessings that come to us in Jesus Christ, he's actually left us a memorial meal to stir up the low ember of our hearts back into a blaze. This is the memorial that really counts, the one that reminds us of his body and blood in verses 22 to 26. Remember, it's Passover night. It's the night that all Jews for hundreds of years remembered as the final night of slavery in the land of Egypt. The 10th plague as a display of God's power to shock and awe the Egyptians was that his angel would pass over the land and kill the firstborn son in every home. But if they were to take a perfect lamb and kill it and apply the blood to the doors of their home, the angel would see the blood and pass over that house, leaving the firstborn son alive. Can you imagine the son, firstborn son on those evenings? Uh, Dad, did you, did you apply the blood? Yes, son. He would have been very eager for the blood to be put on the doorframe for that lamb was a substitute for him. Passover was the very time that Jesus chose to explain the significance and the purpose of his death that would take place the following day. All the Passovers up to this point had actually all been pointing forward to the one true Passover lamb, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus takes up bread and wine and makes them symbols of what he would do for the disciples the next day. He, he takes the bread and blesses it and breaks it just as his own body would be broken on the cross. And he gave it to them saying, take it. This is my body. Then he takes the cup and, and he gives thanks and he gives it to them all. And they all drink. Look at verse 24. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. The first covenant through Moses was sealed with blood from an animal sprinkled on them. Well, that was just a picture. Jesus implicitly teaches of his bloody death on the cross. Whenever we take communion, we are remembering that the death of Jesus is the only basis of our relationship with God. Jesus knew that his blood poured out 
at the cross was the only way that God's wrath could pass over us and we would be unharmed. Only if Jesus took our place. Take, this is my body. This is my blood poured out for many. Jesus was signifying that as he would die on that cross the very next day, he was giving himself wholly and without reserve as a self-offering for his disciples. And when we take communion, what qualifies us to come and share in this memorial meal? Well, when you consider the first disciples, the answer is that the only prerequisite to share in this meal is our sense of need. It is Jesus who graciously invites us to come by faith and receive the symbols of his love, the bread and the wine that reminds us of his death for us, for you, for me. What is Jesus worth to you? What's he worth to us? Remember the words of Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And in verse 12 of the same chapter. Therefore I give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Peter would never forget this night. He writes in his first letter to the Christian churches, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now, COVID lockdown prevents us from having a time of communion right now. But take a look at verse 25 before I close. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. My Christian friends, are you getting weary of this broken world? Jesus Christ will come again and we will join in the feast of heaven and drink the new wine of the kingdom around the table of the king and he's going to make everything new.